listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's the season five finale of Ohio View the World on our season this year on Ohio and the presidency. Today, we're talking about our 27th president, Cincinnati's own William Howard Taft. Taft has maybe the most impressive resume of any American politician I can think of. Solicitor General of the United States, Sixth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals judge at age 35, Governor General of the Philippines, first provisional governor of Cuba, U.S. Secretary of War for five years, President of the United States, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, the only person to be President and Chief Justice. I mean, I can't really think of someone who did more than that. So why is this incredibly impressive Ohioan a largely forgotten president? We'll look at his rise to power, his presidency from 1909 to 1913, and the infamous three, really four-way election of 1912 that led to him being a one-term president. He was just fine with that, to be honest. He was largely forgotten because of the who he sandwiched between between Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, who were the first two chief executives who brought us what was now known as the imperial presidency. Taft was a throwback, a president who completely abided by the restraints of the office. He was a jurist above all, and he respected the Constitution too much to go against it. But that hurts his legacy, especially when we look at the style of presidencies that have become the norm in the rest of the 20th century. We'll talk about how Taft is rolling over in his grave when he looks at our politics today. This is our last episode, but I can promise you we'll be active during the short break before season six. Uh, we did nearly 20 hours well-researched presidential history. I'm so glad so many of you listened to it. We ask that you continue to share it with your friends. Let them know about Ohio V. The World. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. That always helps. Just takes a second. Just scroll down on your phone. We said we'd read some reviews this year. Uh, this review comes from Bolo Nazi. wonder who that is, but... Love uh, continuing my education in this adult history class. Uh, the show has a great pace, compelling and well-sourced guests, refreshingly nonpartisan take on the events that shaped our state. I always enjoy filling in the gaps from my grade school textbooks. So thanks to Bolanese for that. Yesterday, the show was featured for the first of many Saturdays from now until the end of the year on WTVN 610 AM in Columbus. Next Saturday, Ohio Be the World will be featured for the entire hour. The show will run normally from 6 to 7 each Saturday night, and you can hear new content on really the biggest station here in Central Ohio and one of the biggest radio stations in the state, 610, uh, in Columbus. So next Saturday, we'll talk about every president from Ohio, a kind of season review on the airwaves. Check our Facebook, our Instagram, at uh, Ohio V The World Podcast for updates on the schedule for the programming. Uh, we anticipate it being bumped here and there uh, by Ohio State football, probably move around a little bit. We're fine with that. Ohio State football is more important than American history here in the Buckeye State, that's for sure. We'll travel to Cincinnati today to the William Howard Taft National Historic Site on Auburn Avenue, just north of downtown Cincy. We'll visit the National Park Service there. We'll go to the National Constitution Center in downtown Philadelphia to speak with the CEO of the center and Taft biographer, the great Jeffrey Rosen, as well as a couple other our favorite repeat guests, Author and Ohio historian James Robinault will join us from Cleveland. 
and historian and host of the great American political history podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. We sit down one last time with Bruce Carlson uh, from his home in New Jersey, just over the George Washington Bridge from Manhattan, to talk about Taft and the fascinating four-way election of 1912 when President Taft runs for re-election. It's an incredible uh, presidential election, and we'll cover it. We've set the bar pretty high this year, but let's get started on what we hope is the best podcast ever done about William Howard Taft. It's the season five finale, episode 13, William Howard Taft versus the World. The American people have been confused and misled and diverted from the truth and from a clear perception of their welfare by specious appeals to their prejudices and their misunderstandings. That voice you're hearing is President William Howard Taft, our 27th president from Cincinnati. He went by the name Will, and he's one of our smartest presidents for sure. Despite having that incredible resume we spoke of, President Taft is known for one thing today, getting stuck in a bathtub in the White House. He's known for his weight. The problem with that, like so many things in presidential history, is that it's most likely not true. President Taft did not get stuck in the bathtub. I'm sorry to burst the bubble on that. But let's just debunk that now and get it out of the way. Our first guest is the author of the excellent 2018 biography, William Howard Taft, and the CEO of the nonpartisan National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Jeffrey Rosen joined us this summer. There's a link in the show notes to buy that book, and you really should pick it up. Jeffrey addresses the issue of Taft's weight, like I said, just so we can get it out of the way. So if Americans remember President Taft for anything today, it's his weight. There's the famous story about him getting stuck in a bath, which I'm happy to put to rest. It was offered up by the White House usher Ike Hoover in a 1934 memoir, but it hasn't been confirmed by any other contemporary source. Still, it's true that there were a lot of jokes about tafts and and bathtubs. When he showed up in Colorado, citizens invited him to wear a specially constructed bathing suit and to immerse himself in a public bath. Happily, you know, Taft refused to do that. He did actually overflow a bath once in 1915, and the water trickled down, uh, down to the dining room below. And Taft, who always had a great sense of humor about his weight, laughed about the incident, and, and as he left, he looked at the ocean and said, I'll fence that in someday, and, and then there won't be any overflow. <laughs> Taft put people at ease by joking about his weight. When Yale University said that they were going to create a chair for him, he said it might have to be a sofa. And uh, he liked jokes uh, that he told on himself, too, when he told uh, Henry Stimson, one of his aides, that he'd taken a long horseback ride up a mountain. Stimson cabled back, how's the horse? So he, he, he wasn't uh, vain about his weight. But what's so significant and important to stress, through extraordinary self-discipline, actually mastered his weight for much of his life. He tended to eat his feelings. He, he weighed about uh, 240 pounds in college, where he was a great athlete. By the time he was president, he, he ballooned up to nearly 320 pounds. While he was serving as Secretary of War, he weighed 326 pounds. This is the amazing thing. He lost 76 pounds in less than a year by going on this remarkable Edwardian, Edwardian version of a paleo diet, he, mostly fruits and vegetables and not very much of anything else, essentially ate 600 calories a day and lost three pounds a week and went down to 250 pounds. In the stressful year that followed, he abandoned his diet. And by the time he 
left the White House in 1913, he'd gotten up to 340 pounds, which was his heaviest weight ever. But after he left the presidency, he went to Yale, he started teaching, and then he was happy again. And once again, he lost 75 pounds between 1913 and 1914. And the, and the striking thing is, he kept that weight down for the rest of his life, including his years as chief justice. When he died, um, he weighed 244 pounds, which was only a pound more than he weighed at his Yale graduation. Jeffrey Rosen is the CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, right across the street from the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, a very prestigious and important museum and learning center about our founding document, the Constitution. That document was vitally important to the Taft family. Its defense guided not just Taft's life as a judge, president, and later Supreme Court Chief Justice, but also his father, who was a very important man in his time as well. Jeff tells us about the Taft's famous and accomplished father, Alfonso Taft from Cincinnati. Alfonso Taft was indeed a big deal, and his career in remarkable ways uh, prefigured that of his distinguished son. Alfonso Taft was President Grant's Secretary of War and Benjamin Harrison's Attorney General. And he was also an ambassador, a minister to the courts of Austria-Hungary and Russia. In addition to that, he helped to found the modern Republican Party in 1856 on the principle of preserving the Union and the Constitution. Uh, his most uh, admired office was that of a judge. And Alfonso was a distinguished judge who wrote a famous opinion about the separation of church and state, right. which got him into political trouble because it was unpopular and taught uh, William Howard Taft about the importance of resisting popular passions and being guided by judicial principle. Uh, Alfonso also inspired his son to believe that to be a judge was the highest form of office imaginable. And in fact, uh, Taft learned from his father the saying, to be chief justice is more than to be president in my estimation. And of course, William Howard Taft absorbed that lesson and, and valued his chief justiceship more than his presidency. Uh, um, the two were very close. And if you go to the Taft house in Cincinnati, you'll find uh, Taft's library. It includes books that were given to him by his father, law books. Um, and you see the tremendous influence that Alfonso had on his son. Alfonso Taft and his son William Taft grew up in the home on Auburn Avenue, just north of downtown. Now the site of the William Howard Taft National Historic Site you can go to mps.gov backslash WIHO, W-I-H-O, to visit uh, online, and self-guided tours in person are available. It's a great place, and we met with park guides Paula Merritt and Reggie Murray about William Howard Taft. Paula breaks down Will's early years in Cincinnati and at Yale University, where Will was always the big man on campus. He was born on, uh, in Mount Auburn, his parents' house on uh, Auburn Avenue, and... Uh, goes to school at public school number 16 for elementary school, moves on up to Woodward High School, which was downtown at the time. Still a Woodward today, but it's out in a suburb, different suburb. He must have been very popular because lots of people wrote letters to him and knew him. He was number two in his class, high school and college. When he was younger, he gets the assistant prosecutor 
collector of internal revenue, although that's that's not a judge-type position, but assistant solicitor in Hamilton County. He said that at one point his plate was right side up to be getting lots of these positions. Will becomes Judge Taft of the Ohio Supreme Court at age 30 when he's appointed by Governor Joseph Foraker. Believed to be the youngest member on the highest court in the Buckeye State, this big charismatic kid was going places. He gets appointed to a job after that that he wasn't sure he wanted. He becomes Solicitor General of the United States. The Solicitor General is the person who represents the U.S. before the Supreme Court. He wins 15 of his 18 cases he tries before the court. But the most important thing that happened in his time in the Benjamin Harrison administration is he met a young firebrand civil service commissioner from New York named Theodore Roosevelt. An incredible friendship develops that would lead Will Taft all the way to the White House. He had been the judge in the Ohio Superior Court and was tapped to be the U.S. Solicitor General, which by law is the only person to try cases before the Supreme Court. When he moves there, he meets up with Teddy Roosevelt. They lived in the same neighborhood, are very close in age, only a year apart. Young kids about the same age, and they just hit it off. Now, Nellie and uh, Edith don't, the, the wives, but... Um, yeah. And Theodore had a really good friendship. The Tafts would return to Cincinnati when Taft is named to the federal bench. And from 1892 to 1900, he serves on the 6th District Court of Appeals. William Taft always talked about how these were the happiest days of his life. You can go back and listen to our last episode, Ohio vs. First Ladies, where he focused so much on Taft's very interesting and ambitious wife, Nellie. We won't talk about her much here on this episode, but as happy as Taft was, Nellie always wanted more. They'd been living in that high society life in D.C., and she wanted that back. Nellie kept pushing Will to advance his career. I'm sure he was like, hey, I'm a federal judge. You know, this is all I've really ever wanted. He's writing opinions like the Addison Pipe case that was creating important precedents. We moved out of the Gilded Age into the Progressive Era. But another Ohio president would come calling. Taft would get a call to the White House from William McKinley. And Will Taft goes to D.C. January of 1900. He's thinking he's going to get an appointment to his life's goal, the U.S. Supreme Court, at age 42. But McKinley throws him a curveball. He wants him to be the head of a new civilian government we are putting in to replace the military government in war-torn Philippines. The U.S. had been at war with the Filipinos since kicking out the Spanish in 1898 during the Spanish-American War. And it was a vicious war, the U.S.-Philippine War. We'll focus an entire episode on this forgotten and bloody war, possibly as early as next season. Uh, we spoke about the war a little bit during our season premiere. you got to go back to hear the two-part William McKinley uh, vs. the World episode. But we interviewed the celebrated presidential biographer Robert Mary about the similarities between the U.S.-Philippine War and the greatest quagmire of the 20th century, the Vietnam War. This was the mess that William Taft was being asked to walk into. Teddy Roosevelt uh, inherited it, um, although it was beginning to wind down. We had captured uh, the great insurrectionist um, Aguinaldo uh, during the McKinley administration. But I, I would say that the sort of the uh, analogy that we wanted to use to understand the significance of that uh, war was Vietnam, because it was very similar. It was uh, similar terrain, similar political situation internally. Uh, similar difficulties with the insurrectionists who could uh, fight and, and flee, couldn't really gain territory very easily. So, yeah, it was very, very similar. And it was a harbinger 
of things to come because the world was changing and these um, peoples around the world who'd been subject to uh, the imperial colonial uh, policies of Britain and other Western countries uh, were just less and less inclined to accept that. And so the result was um, a lot of violence and a lot of killing. talk about Taft's two and a half years as the leader, the Governor General of the Philippines, we have to go back to that meeting with McKinley at the White House. Will Taft tells the President, I thought you were going to offer me a seat on the court. That's what I really want. But McKinley promises Taft that if you do this for me, if you go to the Philippines and turn around this mess, this big favor, uh, I'll give you the next available spot on the court. Taft agrees, and he excels in the position after he replaces the military governor, Arthur MacArthur the father of World War II legend General Douglas MacArthur. But the Supreme Court would rear its head again as Taft is the ruler of the Philippines. But while Taft was in the Philippines, McKinley is assassinated. Roosevelt takes office as the vice president, and Jeffrey Rosen from the National Constitution Center tells us how President Roosevelt offered his friend at least twice to place William Howard Taft in his dream job, Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Turning down two offers to serve on the Supreme Court was one of the toughest things Taft ever did because it was his life's dream. He really wanted to be on the court. But he also had an extraordinary sense of duty. And he was in the Philippines. He was governor general. He believed that uh, the country needed him. He was creating a system of education primarily, which he felt was his main responsibility, as well as a system of roads and helping to write a constitution. And his efforts were very popular. In fact, it was the only time in his life that he ever achieved uh, mass political popularity when President Roosevelt tried to appoint Taft to the court in 1903. The people are demonstrating outside of the presidential palace, Kiremos Taft, we want Taft, they declared. And in the face of this demonstration, Taft felt that he essentially couldn't leave. And uh, he told Roosevelt and, and Roosevelt petulantly said, all right, you shall stay where you are. But Taft does accept a promotion from Roosevelt. With the approval of his wife, he becomes the U.S. Secretary of War. It's what we call now the Secretary of Defense, but back then, it also managed foreign and domestic policy in the cabinet. And Taft becomes T.R.'s right-hand man. Their great friendship blossoms when the Tafts return to D.C. Roosevelt's leaving for a tour of the Western United States following his re-election in 1904, And he's asked, you know, who's going to be in charge in Washington? And he told the press, and I quote, things will be all right. I've left Taft sitting on the lid. He was essentially acting president. Reggie Murray, a National Park Service ranger from the Taft Historic Site in Cincinnati, talks about Roosevelt's confidence in his great friend, Secretary of War, William Taft. Uh, Taft was Roosevelt's chief emissary and confidant at the same time. Uh, Secretary of War. Roosevelt swore he would not extend his term after his victory in 1904. So he felt that he wanted someone to, that he could trust to come in behind him to take over the reins as president. So it starts off, you know, he knows that uh, William Howard Taft has, has been his right hand man throughout most of the, most of his term, uh, his role as Taft's role as a, uh, uh, he oversaw the initial construction of the Panama Canal, continued 
to supervise matters in the Philippines, made several overseas trips for the president, and functioned as the provisional governor of, uh, of Cuba. So that's where his ministering, that's what Roosevelt trusted the most about him. When Roosevelt won his election in 1904, he said something to the press that night that he would regret for the rest of his life. He would not seek re-election in 1908. Even though he'd only served seven years, he said he wouldn't seek the office again. I've never understood this mood, especially the timing. On the night of like the most triumphant election, you could imagine a win over Alton Parker. He makes this declaration. It's a declaration that would change history, ultimately change the historic friendship of these two presidents, Theodore Roosevelt and Will Taft. Taft would become the odds-on favorite to be Roosevelt's successor, and he wins the Republican nomination in 1908 on the first ballot. He was TR's hand-picked man in many ways. Critics during the 1908 campaign for president said Taft stands for Take Advice from Theodore. We welcome Bruce Carlson, our resident guest on this show, and the host of the excellent My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast to discuss the 1908 election between Cincinnati's William Howard Taft and the three-time Democratic nominee, William Jennings Bryan. The joke that uh, Republicans would tell would be, um, vote for Taft. You can vote for Bryan anytime because <laughs> he had run three times. And uh, there was one break where the Democrats ran Alton Parker, a conservative. But other than that, 1896, 1900, and then 1908, it was Bryan, Bryan, Bryan. Now, there was an opportunity for Brian not to be the candidate, and there were a lot of Democrats. I mean, just think about it, like how people might view like uh, Mitt Romney or Hillary Clinton. Like, do you want to keep running the same person? Some people you got fans, other other people, you know, start to get tired. And that was happening with Brian. He only there was a whole group of Democrats that he didn't represent in the East Coast. You know, he was really, uh, you know, a Western populist, if you will. One thing in order to get the um, nomination, Brian had to decide to drop this whole uh, silver money bit that he had been part of his campaign in 1896 and a limited part of his campaign in 1900 and was his personal uh, favorite issue. But they made him drop that and the world had changed in any case. The strong issue of that campaign that that Brian's going to campaign on. One was like campaign finance reform because he knew the Republicans were getting a lot of money from business. Um, he got tripped up on it himself, by the way, but that's another story. And the other was the tariff issue. So yeah. Brian is a big proponent of a low tariff of um, even though it was a negative word to use then, so you wouldn't use it, free trade. And that was a major issue of 1908. Taft would win the election of 1908 and becomes the 27th president. He wins the Electoral College 321 to 162. He wins 52% of the vote to Bryan's 43%. He carries every northern state, he loses a couple western states, Colorado, Nevada, to Bryan. But those two states are a total of like eight electoral votes. When you win every northeast and every midwest state like Taft did, you almost can't lose. Taft's inauguration was March 4th, 1909, and it was a snow and ice storm, like 10 inches of snow, the outdoor inaugural speech and ceremony are canceled. He's sworn in at the Capitol, but he, he did have a parade in the cold and icy streets of D.C. His wife, Nellie, rode with him in the parade, which was certainly a break from tradition that we talked about last episode. Taft would jokingly say, and I quote, I always knew it would be a cold day in hell when I became president. Taft's inaugural speech you know, discusses the need for a new, more modern, more restrictive tariff system to be passed by the Congress. This is a major deal uh, during the election cycle as well. 
if it starts the Taft presidency on the wrong foot. Taft's presidential style was different from future presidents and many of his contemporaries. He's standoffish about pushing legislation through Congress. He follows the separation of powers outlined in the Constitution to a T. Our guest Bruce Carlson describes his style as like that of the old Whig party when they were in the presidency in the mid-1800s. Bruce Carlson also talks about the political damage done to Taft by his signing the Payne-Aldrich Tariff Bill in 1909. Immediately, Taft gets into trouble during his presidency on the very issue he campaigned on, and that is with the Payne-Aldridge tariff bill that comes before Congress. Even though the Republicans prevailed on the tariff issue, they did do some wiggling, and really through the history of this tariff debate, we can simplify and say Republicans high tariff, Democrats low tariff, because initially Taft's view of the presidency was what we might say is Whiggish, in that a president is not really there to shape legislation. Presidents, the executive, the manager, it's up to Congress to decide what to do. The president, you know, gets involved with what constitutionally they're supposed to, like veto or sign, but he wasn't gonna get involved early in the legislation, and this really bites him. You're gonna have to either sign or veto legislation that's coming from your party. And if you don't get involved in the beginning, you might not like what's at the end. Taft is a jurist. He's not really a politician. He doesn't like the battle of it. So by the time the the bill is done, it's a pretty unpopular bill, and it has a lot of um, issues that offend almost every group in politics. So uh, not to get too bogged down in the details of Payne Aldridge, but what it does, it it both lowers and raises some taxes, um, tariffs, that is, which is taxes on imports. Then two particularly bad categories with the Payne-Aldridge bill is uh, coffee and paper. And papers used to make newspapers and editors write newspapers. So editors up and down the country are assaulting this Payne-Aldridge bill. But Taft now, being a Whiggish president, has no choice really but veto or sign. So he chooses sign and he also makes a statement that this is the best tariff uh, bill that the Republicans have ever passed without really knowing much of the details. And so he attaches himself to this wildly um, unpopular bill. Bruce has been doing his show, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, since 2006. He was in on this whole podcast game real early. If you go to his website, you can search old episodes at myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. He has an old episode I listened to called Taft Walks Away. And it's no secret, Taft did not love the job of being the president. Bruce tells us about the time in his first year that he's so fed up with the job that he just walks out of the White House. He's miserable. Uh, He's only president because of three people, and that would be his wife, Nellie, his brother, Charlie, who wanted a bit of a career and wanted to be close to a president and forced his ambition. And of course, the sitting president, Theodore Roosevelt, who doesn't want his VP, doesn't like him very much, Fairbanks, or, or doesn't like any of the other choices. And Taft is a good administrator of, of a limited scope, like with the Philippines or the War Department. Um, and he's a great jurist, and he's going to go on to be Supreme Court justice, as you know. But this is not the job he likes at all. It involves decisions of which every time you make a decision, you're angering people, angering people who who are friends, you know? And I suppose a judge does that as well, but it's in such a more academic, high-level fashion. Yeah. And, and Taft was willing 
to do that. He wasn't somebody who didn't take any position at all. So he get, you know, is just tired of people between people asking for jobs and asking for favors that he, he can only deliver by disappointing others. It's also the paperwork and the politics. And finally, there's one day where he just decides to walk out of the office. He doesn't tell anyone whatsoever. And he keeps walking and walking. And he's with his friend, Archie Budd, who's actually a mutual friend of he and uh, Roosevelt. And uh, unfortunately, is going to perish in the Titanic incident. But they're friends. And he's with him, but no one else. Secret Service gets really miffed by this. They're not happy at all. Um, that uh, he's walking out. Um, one of the, and he just continues to walk out of the, the, the White House. I mean, it's really in frustration. He's not at least immediately intending to go back. <laughs> this is what uh, Butt notes. Um, and the other thing that happens is while he's walking the streets, and you would think, like, this is the President of the United States, there is no one on the street that recognizes him or stops to say he just does not have the presence that say Theodore Roosevelt was. Um, eventually he's coaxed back to the White House and um, he does go back to his duties. The Secret Service then starts to tail him. I can't imagine a modern president uh, doing this. Uh, Bill Clinton, uh, I, I would think they'd have to put somebody on him to watch to make sure he he, he left after eight years. I mean, he was so into it, you know, but Taft just did not like that job. As we said before, Will Taft always dreamt, even as a boy, of being the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Even as president, he still thinks about it and wants to keep that option open for him. But as president, the chief justice dies, and it's Taft's job to appoint a new chief justice. But he does so with his own future on the court in mind. I love this story from 1910. Jeffrey Rosen tells us about how Taft cancels a meeting with his original nominee, Charles Evans Hughes, to appoint a much older and less healthy chief justice. So in 1910... Uh, President Taft has the chance to appoint a chief justice when Chief Justice Melvin Fuller dies. And he agonizes over the choice because, of course, he wants to be chief himself. So the obvious candidate is Charles Evans Hughes, who's the former governor of New York. Hughes may run against Taft in 1912, so it would make a lot of sense to get him out of the way by putting him on the court. And Taft says, if there's no one I admire more than Hughes, I'll, I'll definitely give him the chief justiceship if I have a chance. When the time comes, he can't bring himself to do it because Hughes is 48 years old. He's a dynamo. He could serve for decades um, and outlive Taft. So in just as Hughes is literally dressing uh, to go to the White House for his interview, Taft calls him and cancels the appointment. And instead, he elevates one of Hughes' colleagues, who's uh, Justice Edward Douglas White. He's a Catholic. He's a Southern Democrat. But most important of all, he's 65 and is the oldest chief justice ever nominated. The only explanation for this unusual appointment is Taft's hope that White will expire in time for Taft to take his place. But White uh, doesn't expire and, and Taft keeps visiting him and checks in, you know, are you feeling okay? Do you want, do you want some more uh, dessert or something like that? And, and White uh, refuses to perish. 1920, Warren Harding is elected 
And Harding says, would you accept a position on the court? And then Taft is thrilled. He says, absolutely, this is my dream, but it would have to be the chief justiceship. So Harding says, yes, I will appoint you as, as chief if I have the chance. Once again, uh, White is still alive, but then out of the blue, um, without warning, um, in 1921, uh, White uh, dies. And Taft has his big chance. President Harding dithers over the appointment. Taft lobbies him heavily and gets lots of surrogates to attest to his uh, both uh, excellence and also his post-presidential service where he got a bipartisan surge of popularity because he served on the National War Labor Board. And then uh, on June 30th, 1921, Harding nominates the man he affectionately calls the Big Chief to be the 10th Chief Justice of the United States. The Tafts were a pro-abolition family in Cincinnati. His father was a pioneer in the field back in the day, founder of the Republican Party, and Will and his wife continued that belief in African-American equality being an important factor. We talk with Reggie Murray from the National Park Service about Taft's views and his work towards African-American rights, and how he also appointed what was called by the press Taft's Black Cabinet. During his time, he was very influential in securing federal support for Hampton University, which was an all-black college. He was, on, he was the president of the board of trustees that they were so pleased with his support and contributions that they made a, or named a room, a room after him at the university. He was also responsible for five, well, four cabinet appointments. One was a U.S. US Assistant Attorney General, uh, then the highest post in the executive branch attained by an African-American. He was, one of our, he was one of four African-Americans appointed to high offices that year, known as the Taft's Black Cabinet, which also included Henry Lincoln Johnson as a recorder of deeds for the District of Columbia, James Carroll Napier as a register of the Treasury, and Robert Herbington Terrell as District of Columbia Municipal Judge. Jeffrey Rosen calls William Howard Taft our most judicial president and he calls him a presidential chief justice. These qualities were not appreciated in his time and really still aren't today. But also Taft had a temper. His aide, Archie Butt, called him a great hater. Archie Butt has kept this incredible journalist. He served as a military aide to both President Roosevelt and Taft and kind of gets caught in the middle between them. There's a story when he's a young man, uh, Taft, in Cincinnati, where he approaches and beats up a newspaper editor that had been critical of his father. Taft was said to be bashing the man's head against the sidewalk in downtown Cincinnati in broad daylight. Rosen talks about his temper and his, how honesty, his honesty almost to a fault, plays a role in hurting Taft's popularity as president. Taft uh, had one big political uh, problem, which is that he was almost compulsively honest, uh, which is not a political virtue. Michael Kinsley, the Washington journalist, uh, said years ago that a gaffe in Washington involves a politician inadvertently telling the truth. And Taft did that all the time. He, he wrote his own speeches uh, and he'd scandalize people by telling the truth. He, he told an audience of veterans that before the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant had resigned from the army because he yielded to the weakness of a taste for strong drink. And that uh, went uh, viral. Taft's most controversial statement came in the course of defending his tariff policy. He believed that he'd done exactly what he said. He asked Congress to revise the tariff downward, and after an unbelievable political fight, the tariffs went down a little bit. 
So Taft acknowledged that the bill wasn't perfect, but then he went on to say, on the whole, I'm bound uh, to say, I think the Payne tariff bill is the best tariff bill the Republican Party ever passed. People were furious about that. How, you know, how could uh, he defend this mess of a bill? In fact, every word of it was true. It was the best tariff uh, bill the Republican Party ever passed. In fact, it was uh, one of the only ones that they ever passed. But um, people weren't in the mood to listen to Taft's legalisms. All this really struck his aide, Archie Butt, and one of the most vivid and intimate portraits of Taft comes from Butt, who'd served both Roosevelt and Taft as a military aide, and tragically went down on the Titanic. Uh, yeah. His death uh, made Taft uh, incredibly distraught because he was very fond of Archie Butt. But Butt said that he was, only, he was always struck that um, Taft refused to play a part for popularity, as Taft put it, and also that he was almost too honest for politics. And, and Butt lamented the fact, we're always saying we want a principled politician, and now we have one and the people don't seem to like it. <laughs> um, but, but also noted Taft's uh, weaknesses, including his, his temper. Uh, Taft was a great hater, as Butt put it, which is a bit of a surprise since he was generally kind and, and thoughtful in his interactions. But when he felt crossed, when he felt that his dignity was affronted, or when he felt he was the victim of disloyalty, then Taft didn't forget the slight, and that wasn't a political uh, virtue either. Um, so uh, for all those reasons, that combination of compulsive truth-telling and great demand for loyalty made him less than successful in engaging in the arts of politics and conjoling and compromising. On the other hand, it didn't at all interfere with his greatest uh, temperamental virtue, which was his judicial temperament. Uh, Taft was a, a judicial president and a presidential chief justice, but at its heart, uh, his temperament was one that liked to weigh competing options, to pay attention to facts, to look at long ledgers of figures before making decisions. This made him the greatest administrator of all the presidents with which uh, Henry Stimson served, and they included Franklin Roosevelt, yeah. Harry Truman, and Herbert Hoover, so it was no, no mean company. Um, and it also made him the greatest administrator uh, to serve as Chief Justice, perhaps ever, at least up to his time, since he built the modern federal judiciary as an administrative matter and made it fully equal to the presidency and, and Congress and in dignity and effectiveness. So, uh, so, so, so this judicious temperament um, made him a very effective chief justice and not a very effective politician. Taft and Roosevelt were connected at the hip when Will was elected. But Roosevelt wanted to give him his space once he took office. TR goes on a year-long African safari, hunting, killing everything the Dark Continent has to offer. And when he returns home, there's thousands of people waiting for him at New York Harbor. There's a parade. He's a national celebrity. And I've always thought this reception he receives in 1910 was a key part, uh, a reason for TR's decision to run again for president. And once he makes that decision in his own mind, he starts finding these reasons to split from Taft and be publicly critical of the president. What his presidency in many ways was a continuance of TR's seven years of progressive policies. Taft files and wins more trust-busting cases. 
He protects more land for the federal government. And he honestly is a very progressive president. But it was never enough for Roosevelt. Jeff Rosen explains the fissure between Taft and Roosevelt in the second half of Taft's term and how it comes to a head when Taft fires one of TR's best friends, Chief of the U.S. Forest Service, Gifford Pinchot. The split between Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft is a poignant story. Um, on the one hand, it's political. Roosevelt claimed that Taft had betrayed his legacy on antitrust and the environment, but really in the end it was personal because Taft had not betrayed Roosevelt on policy. Taft brought more antitrust suits in one term than Roosevelt brought in two, and he conserved or protected more land for environmental protection than Roosevelt did. Uh, really, it was a sense of personal betrayal and the fact that Roosevelt always kicked himself for having pledged not to run again and yeah. wanted, wanted to be president. So the um, story about uh, the environment is too tangled to tell in a concise <laughs> way that listeners can read uh, lots of books, mine or any other ones about Taft to, to get the details. But essentially there was a dispute between Taft and Gifford Pinchot, who was one of Roosevelt's closest advisors and remained uh, an environmental official in the Taft administration. In reality, Gifford Pinchot wanted to be fired from his job. He had serious beef with how Taft was running the Department of the Interior and the Environment. And this was a case of that patented Taft temper we mentioned earlier. Pinchot's openly insubordinate in a letter he sent to the U.S. Senator gets published in the newspaper he knew it would be. He criticized the Taft administration. The problem for Taft is the way he handled the firing. He gets caught kind of backdating this memorandum in support of his decision to fire Pinchot uh, and to back his Department of Interior head, uh, Richard Ballinger. And more importantly, it adds to the growing division between Teddy Roosevelt and his chosen successor. Again, here William is following some things that, that Theodore had put into place, setting aside at the point they were national monuments. The national Park Service wouldn't come along into the Wilson administration um, in 1916. But as we know it today, some of the, the places that William set aside are, are national parks. He sees that we're, they were taking away the land in uh, you know, the out west. We need to hold on to these and, and use them more wisely. So he is an active conservationist. As far as his issues with Gifford Pinchot, it starts with Richard Ballinger, who's the director, the secretary of the interior. And he's made allegations against Gifford Pinchot. It's a he said, she said, they said, just everybody is against everybody and, and trying to discredit somebody else. He does side with Ballinger and whether or not that one is, is correct, it may have come back to bite him in the, in the end because Ballinger had the best interest, interests of the U.S. at heart. Gifford Pinchot had the best interests. They didn't go about it the same way. And Taft firing Pinchot didn't go over well with Theodore Roosevelt because Pinchot and Roosevelt were very good friends. That's going to add to the, uh, the animosity. But it's more than just the Pinchot-Ballinger affair that creates this, this gap between the two men. Taft was a bigger and bolder trust buster than T Theodore Roosevelt. That's too often overlooked. TR gets all the credit while Taft was the one who was really breaking up the monopolies that had been built during the Gilded Age, did more in one term than Roosevelt did in seven years. But Taft was president, 
when the Supreme Court ruled that Standard Oil must be broken up due to its violations of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Uh, that ruling came down in 1911. You can learn about Standard Oil, the world's richest man, John D. Rockefeller, a Cleveland native, in our very popular episode, Ohio versus Wealth, back from uh, 2019. Go listen to that episode. But the rift between Roosevelt and Taft was complete when in the fall of 1911, the Taft administration filed suit against U.S. Steel and its owner, J.P. Morgan, for a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. This was the last straw for Roosevelt. T.R. had personally approved this merger between U.S. Steel and its chief competitor during the Panic of 1907. That competitor uh, was going to go under and spark a worldwide economic crisis, but T.R. said he'd allow the acquisition and would promise not to file antitrust, although U.S. Steel now has like 80% of the steel production in the country. It's the world's first billion-dollar company. Roosevelt was desperate to avoid a widespread economic calamity. He needs J.P. Morgan's influx of cash into the banking system to save the country. And Taft turns around four years later and files suit against him. It embarrassed Roosevelt. It made it look like Morgan and U.S. Steel and the robber barons had taken advantage of T.R. in a moment of weakness, even though that's exactly what happened. Paul Emeritt talks about William Howard Taft, the trust buster. Overall, the trust busting was... Um, something that both of them had had on their platform as far as when they were campaigning. And William just ran with it. He was more active. He thought that uh, everybody should have a chance. There should not be the monopolies. Thus, uh, if, if he could get them broken up, then that's what he wanted to do. But yes, he really did not make Roosevelt very happy when, it, when he went after the steel, U.S. Steel Company. One of my favorite first ladies, Nellie Taft, called it. She predicted that Roosevelt would run and try and steal the Republican nomination from her husband in 1912. And in February, Roosevelt was in Columbus for the Ohio General Assembly's Constitutional Convention. Uh, and he makes some comments that he might run. And then he makes a trip to Cleveland where he shocked the political world. And he told the press at the Cleveland train station that he's running for president again. He said, and I quote, my hat is in the ring. The fight is on and I'm stripped to the waist. This was also the first year of presidential primaries, not every state, but like 13 states. And Roosevelt beats up on Taft in those primaries. There's a third contender, Robert LaFollette from Wisconsin, a progressive. He won two states, but Taft even loses the Ohio Republican primary. Roosevelt wins nine of the 13 compared to Taft's just two victories. We bring back friend of the show and historian James Robinault, who wrote a great article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer uh, about 2016 about this moment of presidential history in Ohio when Roosevelt enters the 1912 race. He actually goes to the train station and gives this uh, very funny talk that he's stripped to the waist and, you know, he's, his hat's in the ring and, you know, he's just, it's like it's going to be a brawl, you know, and that's, that's Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he couldn't do it by just saying, I want to run for president for this. It's got to be, he's going to be in there manhandling and fighting people, you know, stripped to the waist as if he were in a boxing ring. Roosevelt was very popular and Taft was not. So at the end of the day, um, Roosevelt really uh, beats up on Taft, even in Ohio, and, and wins. Uh, and, and that splits the party right down the middle. The Republican convention in Chicago in 1912 was a mess. Roosevelt and Taft are vying for the nomination, and it's unclear how it's going to go. Roosevelt makes the unprecedented decision to actually go to Chicago. And not since James Garfield in 1880, when he was surprisingly picked, had the Republican candidate been in person at a convention. Uh, this convention is marred by actual fighting in the gallery between Taft and Roosevelt supporters. 
Jim Robinalt joined us for the Warren G. Harding episode we did last month. He talks about Harding trying to give the nominating speech for President Taft. As the Stan Pat, Republicans who supported Taft, and the progressive wing of the party supporting Roosevelt are fighting in the gallery. Taft was, you know, the regular part, Republican Party nominee as the president, and Harding delivered his speech. But when Harding got up to speak, the Roosevelt forces were already put together to bolt the convention to leave and start the Bull Moose Party. So when he got up to speak, it was just interrupted by fights in the audience. And I mean, just a real remarkable thing where the, the chairman of the convention had to continually intervene and say, now stop, stop this, let this guy finish his speech. But the speech was interrupted multiple, multiple times. And that's when all the um, Roosevelt supporters walked out and formed, formed the Bull Moose Party. We always wondered, how did Taft win that nomination from Roosevelt? Bruce Carlson rejoins the show to discuss the 1912 convention. He lays out how the Taft camp outmaneuvered Roosevelt, were able to secure a narrow nomination for the sitting president. Roosevelt supporters say that Taft has stolen the nomination, and they walk out. They go across the street. They form their own party, uh, the Bull Moose Party, really part of the Progressive Party. Uh, and Teddy Roosevelt's their nominee. And he's the best chance for a third-party candidate to become president probably in U.S. history. We hear from Bruce Carlson. You'll hear from Taft himself in a clip on the campaign trail talking about the issue of social unrest and how that's being flamed by his opponent and former friend, Theodore Roosevelt. Taft is crushed by Roosevelt's decision, and his chances for re-election are also likely crushed as well. The Republican Party has officially been split into two. So what happens is you see the power of the presidency. And this is kind of interesting because in the past, you had presidents like Andrew Johnson and Chester Arthur, uh, John Tyler, who were in the office but still got nothing um, for politically for that when they went to their next party's uh, nominating convention. That stops. You see, like with Benjamin Harrison in the 1890s, you see that a president can now command that uh, renomination. And this is exactly what happens with Taft. It's not that he's popular. It's not that people think that he can win necessarily um, or that they're guaranteed of it. It's that he has the support of the party's conservatives and conservatives have control of the delegate process, if not the actual popularity in the country or the primary system. So what Taft has a lot of are these particularly Southern delegates where if you're a Republican in Alabama in 1912, you're not going to win in the general election. So those seats just go to party faithful people who have maybe they're a postmaster in Birmingham or something like that. And it's known that they're going to support the president uh, in, in the convention. You're not going to get those votes away. And Taft just simply had too many of these, plus the regular conservative part of the Republican Party, because Remember, while Roosevelt was something of a progressive during his time as president, he did lock horns with Joe Cannon. He did lock horns with um, some of the Stanpack conservatives in Congress during his time. They couldn't do anything about him in 04. He was too popular. It's just that, you know, they disagreed on issues. So now is their chance to back Taft and get control of the party. And Roosevelt was winning primaries. Taft wasn't. Taft was losing, like loses the Ohio primary, loses Maryland, but it doesn't matter because he's got the cards. And so, of course, Roosevelt and his supporters, um, they try to win at the convention. They cannot. And they bolt. 
it's called the bull moose party because, you know, Roosevelt was fond of saying, I'm strong as a bull moose. And it's a party that's very much centered around him. It won't last in a significant way beyond him. There will be things called the Progressive Party and La Follette is a candidate they'll come after. But Roosevelt himself will abandon this third party effort in the next election. It's just, it's, it's centered around Roosevelt. But it does in many ways take on the apparatus of the Republican Party and in the end becomes the main challenger to Woodrow Wilson, not Taft. A condition of popular unrest has been produced. New parties are being formed with the proposed purpose of satisfying this unrest by promising a panacea. Insofar as inequality of condition can be lessened and equality of opportunity can be promoted by improvement of our educational system, the betterment of the laws to ensure the quick administration of justice, and by the prevention of the acquisition of privilege without just compensation, all are in sympathy with a continued effort to remedy injustice and to aid the weak. And I venture to say that there's no national administration in which more real steps of such progress have been taken than in the present one. wide open for the Democratic Party in 1912. With the Republicans, now the GOP and the Progressive Party, this three-party race was slanted towards the Democrats to elect their only the second person as president in 56 years. That's since before the Civil War. The Democrats nominated a man named Woodrow Wilson, an academic president of Princeton College, and the governor of New Jersey. Uh, he'd only been governor for two years. Ivy League college football is like the biggest sport in the country besides baseball, maybe boxing at the time. There's no NFL or NBA. But Bruce Carlson answers this question. Who was Woodrow Wilson? Well, he is the president of Princeton. He had been a significant uh, professor at various colleges and a political science theorist. So he wrote about uh, political science, but yeah, did not get directly involved. But one of the things to remember is that the president of Princeton at this time in 1912 and, and in 1908, really, when he's first considered for the office and before he becomes governor of New Jersey, the president of Princeton University is the, um, it's kind of like, uh, what's the equivalent? It's kind of like being the country's foremost intellectual and like the NFL commissioner, at, you know, and like a significant celebrity because there's no television there's not radio at this point the princeton games the ivy league is the focus of the country's attention this is a very prestigious position that he's in um so woodrow wilson is is very well known he becomes the governor of new jersey passes several progressive reforms that people are looking for and becomes um, a leading candidate for the presidency in 1912 Theodore Roosevelt and the Progressives' campaign, their platform was radical. The main battle between Taft and Roosevelt was over the issue of judicial recalls, meaning that federal judges could be subject to the voters petitioning for the recall of judges they disagreed with. They could vote them out. These federal appointments usually were lifetime positions. 
Taft, who spent so much of his life in the judiciary, saw this as the greatest threat to the Constitution in his lifetime. The composition of the federal judiciary is an issue in next week's presidential election, too. We hear Jim Robinault talk about this divisive issue uh, and how it was framed in the 1912 campaign. We hear a clip from Taft himself as he talks about the importance of an independent judiciary and following the Constitution. Roosevelt was proposing things like, if you didn't like the way a judge ruled in a case or a Supreme Court ruled, judges to be subject to recall like regular politicians. That was a real fundamental philosophical break between Taft and Roosevelt. Taft very much believed in the judiciary and the only reason it had great power and great authority was its independence. Um, especially the federal judiciary where people are appointed for life. And that that's important in our structure. You know, we, we need to have elected representatives. We also need a judiciary that tries to stay above politics. Roosevelt was trying to put it right back into politics. So, yeah. so today, for example, if he had had his way, Roe v. Wade would have been subject to a referendum or gay marriage or any of those things. Some people would see that as a good thing, others not. And so he kind of re relentlessly attacked Taft, who was a nice man and was just befuddled by all this. You know, when Roosevelt dies, you know, he just sobs at his gravesite. They just, he just did not understand why he turned on him. First, whether we shall retain on a sound and permanent basis our popular constitutional representative form of government with the independence of the judiciary as necessary to the preservation of those liberties that are the inheritance of centuries. Now, Taft doesn't like campaigning. He spends most of his time being president in the White House during this campaign, uh, and he's very unlikely to win in 1912. I asked Jeffrey Rosen from the National Constitution Center the simple question, if he didn't like being president so much, if his chances of winning with Roosevelt's third-party bid are so low, why does he even run in 1912? Taft runs reluctantly for re-election to preserve the Constitution. He's become convinced that Theodore Roosevelt is a demagogue who is calling for judicial decisions to be overturned by popular vote, and that the very fabric of American constitutionalism is at stake. Our founders said Taft did not create a direct democracy, but a republic, a representative republic, and Taft believed that he alone could preserve this Madisonian vision of a government ruled by reason rather than passion. So his campaign speech in the next uh, election, in the election of uh, 1912, are mostly about the need to preserve the Constitution. And he believes in it fervently, and he's acted throughout his presidency to uphold that goal. He understands the campaign is doomed by the end of it. He's basically telling his kids, you know, we're not going to be in the White House much longer, so you might as well enjoy it while you can. But um, he, he, he runs out of a sense of duty. And in that sense, it's a noble defeat. And like we said, it becomes clear in the fall of 1912 that this race is really going to be between Roosevelt and Wilson. Taft is polling in third place. The socialist candidate Eugene Debs is polling even, you know, he's like between 5 and 10%, really making this a four-way race. The 1912 election is one of the craziest we could have talked about at the entire episode. Um, there's a great CNN race for the White House episode from this year on the 1912 election, you should go look it up. But we're all familiar with the phrase, the October surprise. We seem to see one in every presidential election now, an event, a revelation, it changes the outlook of the election. You know, this year seems to have multiple October surprises, such as, you know, President Trump contracting coronavirus for one. 
Uh, or in 2000, it's revealed a couple days before the election that George W. Bush had been arrested for drunk driving in the past. The October surprise. Uh, in 1912, it was just as uh, you know epic as this election was. You would think the death of Taft's Vice President James Sherman was the October surprise, but that's a footnote compared to what happened to Theodore Roosevelt on October 14, 1912 in Milwaukee. Bruce Carlson tells us the story of the near assassination of the former president. Roosevelt is, is barnstorming the country while, while the other candidates are, are speaking to. Wilson turns out to be surprisingly electric speaker as well. But Roosevelt gets to a stop in uh, Milwaukee and arrives uh, near the, the hotel. And um, he's shot. He's shot in the chest. Blood is seen on his shirt. He says... Uh, it'll take more than that to get a, to bring a bull moose down and, th- and things like this. And uh, continues, he, he goes to the auditorium and continues to make his speech with the blood still visible on his shirt. Now, what has happened? It turns out that uh, John Schrank, who is a demented person who's been following him actually through several cities and just picks uh, Milwaukee, um, has shot him. There's even a moment where Roosevelt, uh, who, who, despite being shot, is able to talk. He's slowed down a little, but he's, and Roosevelt's like, don't hurt him, don't hurt him. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he actually, his, the man is presented to Roosevelt and Roosevelt looks at him and said, why did you do this? You know, so you have this rare moment of like a, sa- a potential assassin and potential assassin, assassinee, if you will, uh, looking at each other. And there's just this vacant look on the gun, Shrank's face and Roosevelt realized it's of no use, have the police take him away. It turns out later that Shrank is a guy who had these dreams of William McKinley and that Roosevelt um, kind of like a Hamlet-like vision uh, Roosevelt had killed McKinley in his dreams and that McKinley was telling Schrank, you know, avenge me, avenge me. And this is the only uh, reason he can explain. Well, luckily for Roosevelt, um, you know, as you know, he continues with his speech. He is a little bit encumbered by it. He does tell the crowd, please be quiet, you know, but he goes on and speaks for 84 minutes, despite the fact that he's been shot. Now, the reason he's able to do this is because in Roosevelt's pocket, he has his metal eyeglass case, but more than that, he has a 50-page typewritten speech that's folded up in the breast pocket. And fortunately, also, the guy doesn't hit his heart. He hits the other side. He's absolutely lucky. As one person says, there's no other part of Roosevelt that had any kind of protection like that. Mm. Um, and And that slows down, and the bullet does not enter his lung for that reason. Now, Roosevelt was still engaging in risky behavior. There's something doctors call hemostasis where, you know, you, your body's going to sort of fulfill functions for as long as it can. And he was really pushing that when he gave that 84 minute speech to everyone around him's concerned. They do eventually get him to a hospital. Um, they're able to examine it. And it was a, you know, it's a nasty wound, but it does, did not penetrate his lung. And actually, the bullet is not um, removed from them. Then he goes on, continues his campaign. Um, Taft and Wilson, of course, stopped campaigning for a little while. The country goes to the polls on November 5th, 1912. And this four-party race does not work in President Taft's favor. 
he actually only pulls in 23% of the national vote. He wins just eight electoral votes. Taft's result remains the worst performance for any incumbent president, both in terms of electoral votes, eight, and share of the popular vote, just 23%. His eight electoral votes remain the fewest by any major party, Republican or Democrat, uh, since Alf Landon's 1936 failed campaign against FDR. But if you look at the numbers, Taft loses Ohio as well. You have to wonder, though, could Taft have won if Roosevelt had not stabbed him in the back? All this goes back to Roosevelt's foolish decision to declare that he wouldn't seek re-election after his landslide win in 1904. Taft gets 23%, Roosevelt gets 27%, Debs gets 6% as the socialist candidate, and Wilson wins with just 42% of the popular vote. It's the lowest total for a winner since Abraham Lincoln in 1860. That was a four-horse race as well. Uh, Lincoln just got under a little under 40%, which really isn't bad when you consider the Republicans weren't even on the ballot in almost every southern state. But if you add up Roosevelt and Taft, you get 50%. It's more than enough to win. But it's really not that easy. Some of that progressive vote that goes to, to Roosevelt, it would have gone to Wilson, who was a very progressive presidential candidate himself. We talked to Bruce Carlson from the great political history podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, for the last time this season, about Taft's defeat and the difficult what if. What if Taft had been only running against Woodrow Wilson? Obama, Clinton... Uh, George W. Bush and Trump. One thing all four of them have done successfully at the time that I'm recording this is um, fended off any real opposition within their own party. And that's really important for a president. Well, Taft didn't do it. Taft has a huge political fight. And when, you're, when you essentially have two Republican parties pulling from the conservative and the progressive factions of your party, of which the, the big tent had previously had a right to, those votes previously, because the Democrats were a very conservative party for the most part at this time. It's only Utah and Vermont that he ends up winning as the lowest um, performance for an incumbent president actually ran in the general election. Roosevelt in that election becomes the main threat for Wilson, if there is one. He's, he's going to win some of the larger states like Pennsylvania that uh, and, and contest New York, but Wilson ends up winning New York and New Jersey and several big states. Um, I think throughout the campaign, Democrats are pretty clear that they're going to win the election because of this split, and that's the major reason. And I think I'd go with that. If it was Taft running alone, you know, he would have a lot of accomplishments to point to. I also believe that it's possible without the split where Democrats were in a mood to reach out to progressives and Wilson was a progressive. I don't Taft probably had a pretty good chance. Economy wasn't bad at that time. He had passed a lot of legislation. William Howard Taft was excited to leave the White House. I mean, he's pumped. Go look at his pictures of, uh, from Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. He's grinning from ear to ear. And he'd go on to do a bunch of important things after his presidency. He teaches at his alma mater, Yale University. And he experienced kind of a rebirth in popularity during the war. He, he's the chairman of the National War Labor Board. Jeffrey Rosen, though, talks about what sets Taft apart from any other U.S. president. And that's the fact that in 1921, he would be named United States Supreme Court Chief Justice, the only person to serve as the chief executive and the chief member of the judicial branch. And as challenged as Taft was by the presidency, he excelled equally uh, as Chief Justice, and still today is regarded as one of the most important Chief Justices in U.S. Supreme Court history. 
It was his vision to build the, the Supreme Court building we all know today. Jeffrey Rosen discusses the three reasons why Taft is so highly regarded during his 10 years on the court in what was his most cherished position, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Chief Justice Taft had three ambitious goals when he began his tenure and he achieved all of them. First, he persuaded Congress in 1922 to establish a judicial conference of federal appellate judges led by the Chief Justice. That basically created the administrative apparatus of the modern federal judiciary and made it fully equal to the presidency and Congress in effectiveness and strength. Second, uh, he persuaded Congress to pass the Judiciary Act of 1925, which gave the court discretion to focus on constitutional cases rather than being forced to hear mandatory appeals of less consequential disputes. That may seem very technical, but it was hugely important because before that law passed, the Supreme Court had to hear thousands of these very technical, uh, um, not very significant cases, which exhausted the justices and didn't allow them to focus their attention on creating broad principles of constitutional law. That all changed with Taft and the number of cases that the court uh, heard shrank dramatically. And then finally, and most tangibly, he lobbied Congress and got the funds to build the magnificent Supreme Court building, which is yeah. right across the street from the Capitol. Uh, before that was built, the Supreme Court met in the basement of the Capitol, um, and it was unventilated, and the judges had to put on their robes in public view, and it was um, also in, in the Capitol itself. Taft thought it was really important to have a separate building, again, equal in stature and grandeur to signalize the uh, independent uh, weight of the judiciary. The building is so beautiful um, and majestic, and it manages to be beautiful and intimate and majestic at the same time. Taft cared a lot about the design. He worked with Cass Gilbert, the architect, to right. ensure that it would achieve all these goals. It was open after he passed away. When the Supreme Court building opened, in 1932, a photograph of Taft was put in the cornerstone of the building. And today you can see Taft's portrait in the West Conference Room of the Supreme Court and his bust is in the center hall. And during the opening ceremony, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes, uh, who finally got this Chief Justiceship uh, mm. after Taft's death, paid a graceful tribute to his predecessor. He said, we're indebted to the late Chief Justice William Howard Taft more than anyone else. The building is the result of his intelligent Persistence. In May of 1918, President Taft was checking in the Blackstone Hotel on the Chicago lakefront. The hotel clerk informs him that President Roosevelt was staying there as well and currently dining in the hotel restaurant. The two had had the most public falling out in American political history, a falling out that ultimately doomed both of their presidential careers and had marred both of their legacies. But some six years later, after all the name-calling and the mud-throwing of the 1912 presidential campaign, these two former friends made up. Taft made his way into the dining room. Roosevelt stood up and hugged him. The entire dining room saw what was happening. The entire dining room at the Blackstone Hotel, they stand up and they start applauding. That moment that Doris Kearns Goodwin replays in her book's epilogue about Taft and Roosevelt, a book called The Bully Pulpit, it always warmed my heart. They did make up and they spent that night laughing, backslapping, reliving old times when they ran the United States for nearly 13 years. Roosevelt would die in his sleep unexpectedly less than a year later, and Taft would famously weep at his casket. We talk with Taft historic site park ranger Reggie Murray 
about the death of Will Taft in 1930, the first president to ever be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. He passed away March 8, 1930. Uh, Taft died from complications of heart disease, high blood pressure, and inflammation of the bladder. His funeral was the first uh, presidential funeral broadcast on the radio, if you didn't know that. Uh, he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery. <clears throat> he was the first president buried there. Uh, then JFK was the next president buried there. Both their wives are buried at the cemetery. Uh, from what we understand, it, uh, his, his grave sits atop overlooking the Potomac River. So William Howard Taft was the first in a lot of things. As we record this right now, we stand only a week away from the 2020 presidential election. As contentious a political campaign as there's been since 1860. But the presidential election's ugliness is just a symptom of the ugliness we see in all of our public discourse and our political discourse as a whole. The fact that a president would even have a Twitter account would make William Howard Taft roll over in his grave. So much about what we consider normal in our politics uh, in our discussion, our public discussion of political issues, would be confounding to President Taft. Taft spoke openly in his time about the dangers of demagogues running for office, as he considered Roosevelt to be a demagogue uh, in 1912, and the dangers of mob rule. As we close Season 5, Ohio versus the Presidency, uh, we talk with the brilliant CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, Jeffrey Rosen, about how Taft would react to 21st century politics and how Taft really is the end of an era in American politics. Now his defeat in 1912 ushers in the imperial presidency. Taft is, is, is our most Madisonian president. He warns of the danger of being ruled by uh, demagogues and mobs in ways that call to mind Madison's warnings against uh, Shays' rebellion uh, and the mobs of debtors who refused to pay their creditors. And like Madison Taft insists that uh, democracy in America can only survive if deliberation is slowed down, if people have to jump through lots of hoops before they can make important constitutional decisions so that uh, passion can cool and be replaced by reason. So yes, indeed, the National Constitution Center is nonpartisan. We have a, we're a private nonprofit, but we have a mission from Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. Uh, but I can say with complete nonpartisan uh, descriptiveness that Taft would be appalled by our current uh, politics, uh, not least of which because of the speed of deliberation. Uh, Facebook and Twitter would be William Howard Taft's nightmare, just as they were, would be Madison's nightmare. Uh, Taft thought that um, public opinion should be filtered through thoughtful representatives and ultimately uh, deliberated over time. The idea of government by tweet or Facebook post is the antithesis of that kind of slow reason deliberation. And in that sense, um, his objections to Theodore Roosevelt, who insisted that he, Roosevelt alone, was a steward of the people, distressed Taft so much because he didn't believe that the presidency is an essentially popular office. He, he called himself the chief magistrate and thought he had a very limited role to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, but always to seek congressional approval for most of his action. Rule by executive order would have been was anathema to Taft, 
Taft insisted on putting Roosevelt's executive orders on firm constitutional grounds by persuading right. Congress to endorse them. And of course, rule by executive order is not a function of the current inhabitant of the Oval Office. Uh, for the past uh, several presidencies, Republican and Democratic presidents have attempted to achieve by executive order what they're unable to achieve from a polarized Congress. Taft would not have been a fan of any of that. He, he, he thought that it was Congress's duty to legislate and the president's duty to take care that the laws were faithfully executed. So in all this sense, Taft, Taft was our last uh, presidential constitutionalist. Ever since the election of Woodrow Wilson, presidents have viewed themselves as a direct popular representative or steward of the people, leading to what Arthur Schlesinger, the great historian, called the imperial presidency. And that's just a conception of the presidency that Taft utterly rejected. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon. So many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading. Our book recommendation for the season five finale is William Howard Taft by our guest Jeffrey Rosen, written in 2018. This biography is part of Arthur Schlesinger's uh, American President series. Schlesinger himself, the famous American historian, uh, was a Columbus, Ohio native, Ohio State graduate. Rosen's book is concise and incredibly well-researched and delivered. How he covered William Howard Taft's monumental American life in, in just 200 pages, uh, that is a feat in itself. There's a link in the show notes to purchase Jeff's book about Taft, and we asked him about writing it. He likened his method in writing this biography to that of Taft's method for his judicial decisions and, and other you know things that he had to do. Taft was a procrastinator. Jeff admits, you know, he was too in writing this biography. He also talks with us about the William Howard Taft historic site uh, and home in Cincinnati. And again, thanks so much to our guests and, and park guides at that National Park Service Museum, both Paula Merritt and Reggie Murray, for joining us on the show. Taft was a great procrastinator, and yeah. he, he, he could only write on deadline. And at least when it came to this book, I was much the same way. I got the assignment to write the book years ago but uh, delayed it until my uh, publisher gave me essentially a six-month deadline, and I buckled down and wrote the whole thing with great pleasure in, in six months, just a, a chapter a, a, a month. And uh, I, uh, fear is a great motivating factor, and I, I'd like to write on deadline uh, quickly, and uh, Taft did uh, much the same thing. Um, and uh, I did indeed visit Cincinnati uh, I, I go often. My wife uh, grew up in Springboro, and, and oh, okay. the family's uh, still there, so I'm, I'm often in Ohio. I visited the Taft House uh, several times, and during one especially memorable visit, Paula, who's one of the amazing custodians there, took me to the Taft Library, and together we opened the bookcase that contained his books and examined the handwritten notations 
on the copy of the Dred Scott decision, which is in the library, which was from 1857, the year that the decision came down. Uh, and you see a handwritten notation on the cover calling attention to Justice Benjamin Curtis's dissent. We thought, we thought that that was from Alfonso. Uh, yeah. Contemporary notation. Other books in the library include a political history of slavery in the United States, an early edition of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, Alfonso gave many of his books to his protege, George Washington Williams, who was an African-American politician, historian, and diplomat from Ohio, who later endorsed his nomination for governor in 1879 in these terms. Judge Taft, the only white man on the cabinet of any president during the last 18 years, who had the manhood of the temerity and humanity to exact the powers of the Constitution of the United States to protect the black man in the exercise of his constitutional rights. High tribute. Uh, but it was, it's very inspiring to go to the Taft House. I'm so grateful to Paul for showing me around. And I hope anyone who's nearby in Cincinnati will check it out and inspire the great constitutional spirit of Alfonso and William Hart Taft. That's it. Thanks to Jeffrey Rosen, uh, a man who we've really looked up to for how he's run that National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Miss Ohio View the World and I visited a couple years back across from Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. You can go to constitutioncenter.org for more information. If you're in the city of brotherly love, it's a must visit. Also pick up Jeff's book, William Howard Taft. There's a link in the show notes to buy that fantastic book about our 27th president. Also, thanks go out to two of our most popular and repeat guests, both Jim Robinault and Bruce Carlson for their expertise. Um, And also to the critically acclaimed presidential historian, Robert Mary, who spoke with us on his, uh, on our season premiere, uh, William McKinley versus the world. And he talked with us this episode about the U.S.-Philippine War, an overlooked war in American history that you can expect us to revisit as early as next season. We're going on break, a well-earned break, if we might say so ourselves. This has been our most researched, I believe our best season of the show for those real history buffs out there who, who love Ohio v. the world. So thanks so much for listening. Such great numbers. Don't forget, share the show with your friends. Word of mouth, you're rating and reviewing the show. Uh, super important. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, those accounts are the best way that you can help the show. Or you can email me at ohioviewtheworld at gmail.com and buy an Ohio v. the World t-shirt. Only $15 free shipping until the end of the year. Our Christmas pricing, we're just going to put that into effect early. Uh, you can go back and listen to our previous 12 Ohio in the Presidency episodes. Uh, and, and we're back next year with a little more normal season with completely different Ohio and American history topics each episode. It won't be much of a break for us here at Ohio V the World. We've got a ton of research to do to get ready for Season 6. If I had to guess, I'd say maybe March 2021 we'll be back. But as you learned in, you know, in this pandemic, scheduling is subject to change. You'll be hearing from us during our break. We've got a great talk we did with the Ohio Society of Washington, D.C. that we're releasing before the end of the year. Uh, and don't forget, Ohio V the World is on your radio dials here in Ohio and Central Ohio from now until the holidays. Uh, the show will be featured every Saturday night on 610 WTVN, biggest AM station here in, in the capital city, usually from 6 to 7 p.m. Uh, and will be the topic of an entire hour next Sunday on WTVN as we discuss all of Ohio's presidents on the eve of the 2020 election. Really looking forward to that new content each week. Uh, we need our listeners to tune into that as well. So thanks again. Really proud of the work we did this year. Certainly uh, helped make our coronavirus year go by a little easier. And I hope our 20 hours of programming help you escape some of these difficult realities of life these days. 
I mean, if there's somebody out there that made a better podcast about Rutherford B. Hayes or Benjamin Harrison, hell, all these Ohio presidents we discussed this year, I'd love to hear them. Uh, speaking of Rutherford B. Hayes and that controversial election of 1876, we could be in for a similar delayed outcome this year with so much vote being tabulated after election night. So just keep your cool, America. Trust the results. Uh, and most importantly, get out there and vote in person, absentee, whatever. Just vote. The turnout for Hayes' election in 1876 was the highest in U.S. history. 82% of eligible voters uh, voted that year. 55% of eligible Americans voted in 2016. We can do better than that. So do better, Ohio. Get out there and vote. Thanks, everybody. Hang in there. We'll see you next season on Ohio vs. the World. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.